And so I want to jump into Ephesians chapter 6. I want to give you this verse first, kind of briefly explain, and it's going to kind of set up the rest of the message. Ephesians 6, verse 1 to 4 says this. Children, you need to listen. All you kids in here, you really need to listen to this verse because it's got a, a reward for you at the end of it. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, <laughs> not because they're right, because you belong to God. For this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you. Are you kids listening? I'm trying to help you out, parents. Hit them, elbow them, tap them on the head, wake them, something. Things will go well for you. Watch this. Here's the second part of it. And you will have a long life on this earth. You know what I think that verse means? That means that God's not going to let your parents take you out. I'm telling you, that's what that verse means. That if you honor them, they're not going to take you out. <laughs> Send you up early. I tell my kids, are oh, you about to go see Jesus? <laughs> and they know I'm clowning, but. Then it says this. So, so it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. I find this verse kind of funny because up to this point, the Bible's talking about honoring mothers, fathers and mothers and fathers and mothers and fathers and mothers. And then all of a sudden he sucker punches the men and he goes, now, fathers, don't treat your children or don't provoke them to anger. And I go, I get a little offended. I'll just be real with you. I go, what, like women don't provoke kids to anger? Oh, don't, don't shut me down when I'm preaching good. Like, like women don't push kids' buttons. I mean, it's like God, God jumps on the fathers and he goes, fathers, don't provoke your kids to anger. And so it makes me realize and it makes me understand even more how important fathers are to God. God loves fathers. God's a good father and he loves fathers. He loves men. God is passionately in love, in love with men. God loves the head of the household. He loves to, to be with the leader and, and, and really challenge and lead the leader. And so God's just passionate about men. So he's speaking to the man of the house and he's saying, don't treat your kids in such a way that it's going to provoke a, an anger in them. Instead, bring them up with the discipline and the instructions from the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means your Bible, of course. You need to bring your kids up with the instructions and the discipline of God's word. But let me tell you what else it also means. It also means that your kids need to see, hear, and experience your relationship, dad, with God. Your kids need to hear you talking about how God showed up in your business, in your personal life. In your finances, in your physical body, in your middle, in your marriage. Your kids need to hear how God's kept your marriage together when everybody else says it wasn't going to work. You follow me? God's a very generational God. And the title of my message today is Generational Fathers. I want us to be fathers that aren't just fathers for the kids that we have now, but we're fathers for generations to come. You see, I'm challenging you today to become a legend. Not in your own mind. <laughs> Come on, somebody, somebody's like, ah. Oh. <laughs> but to be a legend in your family. I'm talking about the kind of person that, that your great-great-grandkids are sitting on a porch somewhere saying, man, you heard about my Papa Bill? He was a man of God. And they go on to tell stories. You're a legend. 
Amen? That's the kind of challenge I want to give you this morning. So fathers, lead in such a way that it provokes your children to ask how. I want you to lead in such a way that your kids got to come to you one day and they got to go, man, dad, how? How did you provide for us when I know you didn't make much money? How, how did you and mom keep it together? How did, how, did you, how did you get healed from that thing? How did you turn that situation around? Come on. How did, how did you restore the relationship with your dad? You see, my kids see God's restoring power in my relationship with my father because they know what it's, it was like before and they know what it's like now. So they can look in my life and say, God is a restorer even when it's not supposed to happen. Amen? Psalm 78 says this really clear. Verses 1 to 7, it says this. It says, Oh, my people, listen to my instructions. Open your ears for what I'm, to what I'm saying. I will speak to you in parables, earthly stories. I will tell you hidden lessons from our past. Stories we have heard and known. Stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children we will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his law to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born. And they are in turn, and they in turn will teach their own children. So each generation, I love this verse, verse 7. So each generation should set its hope anew on God. That means that each generation that comes after you should set their hope brand new on God. That's the kind of generational father I'm talking about. The kind that leaves a legacy. He's always talking about what God's doing. He's not just Bible beating his kids. He's telling real life stories of things that they, tangible things that they can hang on to. Everywhere he goes, he's telling stories of how God showed up. Not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. What a great verse. We're talking about being a generational father today. And so what I want to do now is I want to bring you into the Old Testament and I want to show you three generations and how things went crazy in three generations. And I believe just through prayer that, that there's many of you are going to find yourself in this story somewhere. But it's a story of three generations of, of fathers and sons. So go with me to second Chronicles, second Chronicles. It's in the old Testament. I, I just love to hear your Bibles turning. <laughs> It's an electronic generation. You can't even hear a Bible turn. It's like, come on. Can somebody just flick a page, a page for the brother this morning? <laughs> Can I hear a little shuffling of the papers? I want to talk to you about Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Manasseh. And so, Second Chronicles chapter 28, verse 1. Watch how this chapter opens up. This is Ahaz's chapter in the Bible. This is his... This is his story in the Bible. And I want you to think about this because every one of us has a story. Our life is a story. And I want you to pay attention to how Ahaz's story opens up. Verse 1, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. 
He did not do what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord as his ancestor David had done. I'd be like, come on, God, you couldn't have just like skipped that line. I mean, he just, God just calls him out in front. I mean, like second sentence, like he did not do what pleased the Lord. It didn't say anything good about Ahaz because there was nothing good about Ahaz. Ahaz was a king who was terrible. He was ruthless. He was he was demonic. He was evil. He was dark. Ahaz got into the into the practice of worshiping pagan gods. And he started to practice and do what these pagan gods were doing back in those days. And Ahaz actually sacrificed some of his own sons in a fire. They would go down to a place called, uh, let me see if I can get this right. It's, it's Old Testament, y'all. He, he went down to a place called Ben Hinnadab. Where's it at? Ben Hinnom. Sorry. He went down to a place called Ben Hinnom, which translates to a dump. He brought his sons to a wasteland built a fire and made him walk through it and sacrificed his own sons. This guy was wicked. He was evil, but he was still a king. And I want to say to you this morning, some of you were raised in a type of wasteland. Some of you came out of a dump. And you don't know how you got out of that. You don't know how you got rescued. But all you know is that you're not in the dump anymore. And you're sitting here this morning, which is far from the dump. Come on, somebody. And you don't know how you've been rescued. You don't know what happened in your life. But somewhere along the way, God plucked you out of the dump and he put you into his house. Ahaz was wicked. He began to set up altars on every corner in Jerusalem. He set up altars to pagan gods. One of the first things he did is he went to the temple of the Lord, which represents our relationship with God in those days. And he shut the doors and locked them. First thing he does is he cuts off the relationship with God. Some of you were raised with a father who wouldn't dare darken the door of a church. He would make fun of the family if the mama tried to raise up and say, I'm bringing the kids to church. He would make fun of you, maybe. Some of you were raised with a father who would shut down the presence of God. He would shut down the relationship of God for your family. And how you're in a relationship with God now, who knows? But that's what Ahaz did. He shut the doors to the temple. The Bible says that he actually went in and started to take the items, the precious items in the temple that represented all kinds of things. And he began to give them to other kings, hoping to find favor and help with them, which in turn they would turn around and then attack him. He got his back up against the wall many times, but he would never cry out to God. He would always go to man and never to God. Ahaz finally starts to get worse. He starts to take the items of the temple and destroy them. And he basically shuts off the relationship to God with the people of Israel. And he sets up all these pagan altars and temples for them to come and worship at. A wicked king. The Bible says that that when Ahaz died, he had aroused the anger 
of the Lord. There was over 100,000 Israelites were killed during his reign because he would arouse the anger of God. A wicked man. The Bible says when he died, most of the kings of Israel would get buried in one place. This kind of a place of honor for all the kings of Israel to be buried in. They wouldn't even bury him in there. They, they did not even honor him in his death. Some of you have been to funerals like that. Where you go and there's, you, can't, you can't even lie a good thing about him. That was Ahaz. But Ahaz had a son named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was raised in all of this wickedness, all of this darkness, all of these events, all of this this provoking God's anger, all this death. He was raised in it, and Hezekiah becomes king. And I want you to see what happens, and I want you to pay attention to how quickly things can turn around. Listen to me clearly. Pay attention to how quickly things can turn around, because some of you believe that God's slow. And God's not slow. Hezekiah, I mean, 2 Chronicles 29, 1 and 2. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became the king of Judah. And he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother was Abijah, the, the daughter of Zechariah. He did, I love this, he did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight just as his ancestor David had done. Listen to me. I want that written in the history books about me. That bald-headed man did what God liked for him to do, just like his ancestor David did, right? I don't want my, my history, my little chapter in the, the book of history to say he didn't do what pleased God. I wanted to say he was pleasing to God. Amen? Hezekiah was pleasing to God. But how could he be pleasing to God? He was raised up in such a disastrous environment. He watched his brothers get sacrificed in a dump. Some of you today are sitting here and you've been living under the excuse that my daddy wasn't this or my daddy was this. And that's been your banner for your whole life. That my daddy wasn't this or my daddy was this. My daddy was an alcoholic. My daddy was a drug addict. My daddy didn't like God. My daddy was, he was mean. My daddy was abusive. My daddy, you fill in the blank. And if you're not careful, you can continue to live your whole life underneath that banner. Hezekiah could have lived his life with the excuse He could have lived his life in an excuse. But instead, he chose to do something different. He didn't have a good example. He didn't have a a father who was a man of God that he could say, well, I know what to do because my daddy did this. He didn't have that. Hezekiah gets right to work, and I want you to pay attention how quickly things change. I'm going to do a little bit of reading. Verse 3, it says, "In in the very first month of the first year of his reign, Hezekiah reopened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. Boom. Drop the mic. Boom. He sees what his father did. Closed off the relationship to God. He comes in in the first month, cracks the doors open, and says, we're going to get this thing right. We're going to open up the relationship to God again. You got to see this. It's important that the first thing he did is what he did, that he went in and he opened up the doors to the relationship with God. That's how they related to God in those days is through the temple. He kicked open the doors. Not only that, the Bible says that he repaired them. 
so they could continue to be used. He had a long-term plan for the presence of God. And he was going to reestablish God's presence in that kingdom. Does that in the first month. He didn't ask permission. (laughs) He didn't take a vote. He had something burning on the inside of him that he didn't get what he thought he was supposed to get from his daddy. But somewhere along the line, he was plucked out of a dump and found this relationship with God. And now he's got something burning inside of him that he can't even explain. And it's just causing him to reestablish God's house, reestablish God's presence in his kingdom. And for you today, that may, that you, may be that you, you make a stand today. You draw a line in the sand. You say, today we're going to start reestablishing the presence of God in this house. That I don't care what's going on. I don't care what's coming up. I've done chased everything else there is to chase. It leads to nothing. We're going to establish the presence of God in this house today. We need to get that. That's just the beginning. He summoned the priest and the Levites to meet him at the courtyard east of the temple. He said to them, listen to me, you Levites. Purify yourselves and purify the, purify the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. R- remove all the defiled things from the sanctuary. <laughs> he calls in the priest and the Levites. He says to them first, clean yourself and then start to clean out the temple. <laughs> See, I love it when somebody gets a little audacious and they start going after something because stuff starts to happen and people start to get nervous and they start to get a little weirded out because, oh, my God, the king's doing something crazy. Oh, my God, daddy, what happened? Daddy's reading his Bible. Oh, my God, daddy's praying. daddy's praying on the porch. Are we about to die? He starts to clean the house out. He says, you go into that temple. And you take everything out and you clean it. And then you reestablish it. You put it back in its proper place. You take all these stupid gods that my daddy set up and you throw them out. You get rid of them and you clean this place up. And so they did. They started to clean the place up. And put it back in order. All the place. You see, God's a detailed God. And when he set up the temple, everything had to be in a certain place because God's a very detailed God. They put everything back where it was belonged. It was clean. The, 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 the gliggly was, <laughs> was swept out. Come on, somebody. It was clean. It was good. The presence of God came back in. Come on. It was refreshing, filling presence of God. Some of you have been longing for that because the air has seemed stale for a long time. But I want to tell you today, if you'll open up your life and set things in order, you can get some fresh breath from God. They start to build a little momentum in the nation. Kicking out the gods. Just imagine walking through Jerusalem on every corner, taking the the altars and destroying them and throwing them down. It was such an impactful, powerful, natural thing. But imagine what was happening in the supernatural. That the gods they were serving were getting thrown down. You see, I think God loves it when we take the gods that we serve. Because we all serve a few gods. And we begin to throw them down. And we say, I had enough of this. This has led me nowheres. 
Today you die. Right? I'm done with this. I believe God gets a little excited. I believe something happens in the spiritual realm. Man, they start to wipe things clean, tearing down poles, tearing down altars all across the city. Then the Bible says they have this, (laughs) they lit the pit. (laughs) They lit the big old pit. They built this big old altar. And now that they've cleaned everything out and they've reset order in God's house and the presence of God is now accessible to them, they start to deal with their sin. They start to sacrifice animals. They didn't just sacrifice a few animals. There was like a thousand cows. I mean, this is the biggest barbecue ever. I mean, they could have fed everybody from New Orleans to Lake Charles and then had leftovers. Come on, somebody everybody had them a little plate going home. But they begin to deal with the sin of their forefathers and even their own sin. They broke the generational curses. They said, Lord, forgive us for what our forefathers did or didn't do. They dealt with it. Man, I'm telling you, when we, when we deal with the sin in our life, the pride in our life, the arrogance and the selfishness in our life, when you deal with that, let me tell you something. God comes rushing in like a flood and his presence comes upon you and he just loves to be with you. He's going to come lean on you. Why? Because you're holy and you're pure and you're set apart and you're not dealing with that other stuff anymore because you set yourself apart for him. Man, this momentum gets built. All of a sudden, the temple's in order. And and I think Hezekiah gave some instructions, but I don't think he made a commandment. But he said, I want you to grab your instruments. This is important. I want you to grab your instruments and I want you to stand in your place. And all of a sudden, when I read it, it sounds like a spontaneous outburst of praise and worship starts to happen. I just, I've experienced it and I I don't know how to explain it the best that I can, but I, I just want to say to you today that when you start to set your house right, and you start to get this right, and you start to get your house in order, and you reestablish the presence of God in your family, there's a spirit of praise that starts to rise up. You don't have to turn the radio on. You don't have to have Sonos playing. It's, it's going to come up. It's going to get inside of you. Men, when you come home, your wife's going to have that twinkle in her eye. She gonna, she, you're going to walk in, she's going to be like, <laughs> waiting for you to get home all day, boy. Yeah. Come on, can I get a witness? Your kids are going to like you. You're going to come in and be like, what's up, dad? How you doing? You're going to be like. I'm telling you, listen to me, I'm telling you. When you reestablish God's presence in your house, praise has to come out. It has to come out. And let me tell you something. It's contagious and it's infectious. It, it, will, it, will, it will make you feel uncomfortable if you're not the one praising. I'm going to give you a story. And Jennifer, I hope you don't mind me telling everybody this. It's not an embarrassment. But one day, my son and I were driving home. And, and Jennifer, she's off on Fridays. And every Friday, you can see Jennifer up and down the driveway. A thousand feet at a time. Little legs just getting it. And she's, and she's exercising. And, man, it, it provokes me. I'm like, dang, man, G can do it. Dang, I can't. What's the deal? And so me and Ethan's riding back 
from somewhere and we're passing in front of their driveway. And, 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 and Jennifer's like almost to the road. And she just busts out in this spontaneous dance, like in the middle of her driveway. I, I've, I've tried to, to replicate it, but I can't. I might throw my back out. But it was, it was like her arms were swinging and her legs were swinging. And Ethan, am I, am I lying? You were with me. We, we, we passed by and, and we kind of, me and Ethan, we don't say much in the truck. We kind of went. And, and I thought we were going to laugh. But I got provoked. Something inside of me because of her just outburst of praise in the middle of her driveway provoked something inside of me. And the spirit man said, what you going to do? I couldn't laugh at you, G. It provoked me. She's in the middle of her driveway dancing her guts out to Jesus. Why? Because it was something inside of her. The presence of God was in her. It was a moment where praise just came out. You see, when you establish the presence of God in your house and you set things back in order, men of God, praise is going to burst out. Can I be honest with you? And this may hurt, but some of you, you're like petrified wood. I mean, you, you come to church. I'll, I'll just be honest, and I, I love you. But I'll be honest, some of you, I got I to gotta like step my game up to try and get a smile out of you. And I hate that. I'm not a promoter. I'm just, I, I try to put a little butter on your bread to get you to smile a little bit, get you excited. But it's like, dang. But let me tell you something. When somebody gets it on their own, You don't have to make it come out. It's going to come out. And it's going to challenge the people around you. So this big old praise party breaks out. And they're celebrating. And I imagine God is sitting there going, man, I remember not even a month ago, this place was a wreck. Not even a month ago, things were in shambles. But oh my goodness, look what happens when somebody gets a little excited about me and makes a stand and cleans things up and sets them back in order. I believe God was dancing. Praise breaks out. They finish sacrificing all the animals. And I want to warn you, 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 you say it sometimes, we, we'll say it in these little cliches that, you know, when everything is going right, be careful because something's about to go wrong, right? You, you mean if you're having a good Monday, you're like, where's it coming from? <laughs> the left or the right? <laughs> in the midst of all this celebration, there's still an enemy. The Bible says that there was this other king. He was an enemy of Jerusalem, an enemy of Israel. His name was, and I'm going to say his full name one time, but then I'm not going to say it again because it's just, it's tough. It's Sennacherib is the guy's name, and he was a king. So from now on, I'll call him Sinna. Just to help me. Sinna starts to attack the cities around Jerusalem. And he's coming after Jerusalem. He's coming after the people of God. He's coming after God's prize. And so he's, he's going and he's attacking all these cities around Jerusalem and he's getting victory and he's wiping out the people and the word's starting to get to Hezekiah that he's coming after you. In fact, the Bible says 
that, he, that, that Sinna actually sent some ambassadors into Jerusalem with these letters that he wrote. And instead of spe- or reading the letters in their language, they, they read the letters in the Hebrew language so that the Israelites could understand clearly what he was saying. And in the letters were just threats. They were like, your God cannot defeat me. Everybody's God that's ever tried to stand up against me will not stand up against me. Your God will fail you. They're walking through Jerusalem reading these things. Trying to impart fear into the children of Israel. But Hezekiah is the king. His daddy's not king anymore. Hezekiah is the king. So Hezekiah does something that his daddy never did. He calls for Isaiah. Isaiah comes. He says, let's pray. And Hezekiah cries out to God in that moment. His daddy's back was up against the wall, but he would never, he refused to cry out to God. But Hezekiah somehow, some way, along the way, learned that if I get my back in the corner, if I get my back up against the wall, I can cry out to God. And he cries out to God. And watch this. The Bible says that God sent an angel to wipe out Sinna's army. The Israelites never went to war. The angel wiped out Sinna's army and Sinna had to turn around with his tail tucked between his legs and go back home full of shame. The Bible says that. In fact, when he got back home, his two sons killed him with the sword. I just can't help but say that when you get your your stuff straight and you get your business right and the presence of God is reestablished in your house, come on somebody, and you're leading the way you're supposed to lead, God's going to go before you. you may, your enemy may threat. They may send letters. Come on, they may make phone calls. They may hit you up on Facebook. But God's going to go before you, and he's going to attack the enemy for you, and you don't even have to lift a finger. Now, what I find really crazy is that when he learned that they were coming against him, Hezekiah did something very smart. He pulled in his advisors, his military guys. He says, what can we do? He starts to rebuild the walls and fortify the city. But there was something in there that just caught my attention. The Bible says that he stopped up the brook that drained down to where the army was coming from. He stopped up the water supply and rerouted it through his city, saying that the enemy's going to come against me. He's not going to have nothing to drink. And I want to say to you today that some of you, you need to go home and you need to stop up the thing that's been refreshing the enemy in your life. This is important because sometimes we get, we come into a relationship with Jesus and we, and we, we're growing and, and things are happening and things are going good, but we're still hanging on to a little bit of junk on the side. Got a little bit of yesterday with us. Got a little bit of an addiction here, maybe hanging on to something that we know we shouldn't hang on to. We read the Bible and when we read about it. We kind of skip over it because we don't like it. But I want to tell you today, you need to take a chapter out of the book of Hezekiah and you need, to, you need to stop up what's refreshing the enemy in your life. What is that? Is that a little bit of drink? Is it a little bit of smoke? Is it, is it an anger issue? Is it depression? What is it? Is it something you're watching? Something you're saying? What is that thing that the enemy can always have a hold of in your life? Because whatever that is, that's the thing that he's messing with you with. 
And if you'll just stop it up and say, you know what, Jack, you can come into my house and you can attack my family, but it's going to be hard. You're going to have to falsely accuse me. I'm not giving you any grounds to stand on. Uh Am I in the right church? Because too many of us, the enemy can come and truly accuse us. And God's saying, man, set yourself apart. Don't get involved with those things. And when the enemy comes and he throws out his false accusations, all of heaven knows that it's not true. The enemy defeated. Then all of a sudden, the nation of Israel goes into a time of peace, the Bible says. Some of you have been longing for a time of peace in your family. You've just been through some junk. Seems like every time you turn around, there's another fight. There's another struggle. There's another war. There's another thing. There's always a thing. And you're longing for a time of peace. Israel becomes or, or comes into a time of peace. And what happens is, is, is they get generous with one another, the Bible says. And then all of a sudden, God starts to bless them. And I want you to hear this today. You don't get right with God to get the blessings. You get the blessings because you got right with God. Amen? God just loves to be good to his people. And he's just looking for an atmosphere where he can just dump it on you. Come on, somebody. Say, dump it on me, Lord. (laughs) He's just looking for some folks that are going to live a little holy and a little righteous, going to set themselves apart and say, I ain't got nothing to do with the world. The devil ain't got no hold in my life. And he's going to pour. They became wealthy, the Bible says. Hezekiah was so respected and honored that they just continued to bring him stuff. He didn't ask for it. Here's the miracle in all of it. The whole time Hezekiah is king, he never once lifts his own name. All he does is lift up the name of God. You don't have to ever lift your own name. You lift up the name of God and he'll lift up your name. You set yourself apart for him and he's going to set himself apart for you. You sacrifice for him, he's going to sacrifice for you. He didn't lift his own name and God poured it out on him. The Bible says that he lived in an incredible moment of peace and prosperity. That wasn't even his goal. His whole goal was just to lift God's name up, to reestablish his kingdom in the nation of Israel, to reestablish his presence and to set the nation apart for God. That's all he wanted to do. He had no ulterior motives. And the funny thing is is that God knows that. He knows when we're doing things to get things. And he knows when we're doing them just to shine a little light on him. He knows. He's God. He knows everything. Right? He knows when you're real and when you're not. And so they go into a moment of peace. And the Bible says at the end of Hezekiah's life, That he dies. And unlike his father, he gets buried in what they call the upper chamber of this room where all the kings were buried. He was buried with David. What a place of honor. The Bible says that the whole nation came out and honored his name. I want thousands of people to be at my funeral. And I want it to be a celebration and a feast. And I don't want my kids to have to make up something good about me. And I don't want people to come to my funeral and have to fake it. 
Amen? I want him to come with a heart of honor. Say, man, he was a hero. He was a legend. He was somebody I looked up to. I'll never forget when he was there for me when I didn't have any help. Amen? That's a generational father. So let me quickly try to wrap this up. That's Hezekiah. So his daddy was evil. His daddy didn't leave him an example. He had to find his own way with God. And he did. And he reestablished God's presence in the kingdom of Israel. And my challenge to you today is to reestablish the presence of God in your house. Start in your house. Chapter 33. Hezekiah dies, gets honored. Right along with David, which I think is incredible. Chapter 33, Hezekiah had a son named Manasseh. And I want to say to you that some of you have children that have run away. They've run astray. They've done things that they weren't supposed to do. And they may be in that season today. But I hope that this gives you hope. Because you see, Manasseh couldn't say what Hezekiah could say. That my daddy was not. Manasseh couldn't say that my daddy didn't love God. He couldn't say that my daddy wouldn't go to church. He couldn't say that my daddy didn't pray. He couldn't say that my daddy didn't read his Bible. He couldn't say that because he would be lying because that's who his daddy was. So Manasseh comes and watch this. He's 12 years old when he becomes king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight following the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven out from the land ahead of the Israelites. Manasseh goes back to his grandfather. He goes back and starts acting like his grandfather Ahaz. He tears down the work of his daddy. And he raises up all these altars again. This is just crazy. He raises them up and he begins to worship the pagan gods again. And you go, well, dang, pastor, this was all sounding good. You know, I thought like my kids were going to just naturally be good. I didn't say that. Because it don't matter how you raise them. Well, it does matter. But when they get out of your house, they're going to make their own decisions. And I've seen too many parents get ridiculed for raising their kids right. And their kids just made a bad decision and let them off into another direction. Kids are going to make the decision. I made my own decision. I was raised right. I saw my grandma pray. I saw, I was there when she sang hymns. I used to sing them on the porch with her. I was there when my mama prayed. I was raised right. I chose to be wrong. Are you seeing this? He's doing everything his grandfather did. The Bible says that he aroused the anger of God, just like his grandfather did. And God released his enemy to come and capture him. Now get this picture. They come in and they capture Manasseh. And they put a chain around his neck. And they put cuffs and chains on his hands. And they walk him out of the city in front of everybody. The Bible said he started to freak out. His back was up against the wall. He was in a bad spot. But you see, there's something he had that his daddy didn't have. He had a daddy who prayed. He was there and he heard his daddy cry out to God. You see, let me tell you something this morning. You need to let your kids walk in on you, crying your eyes out to God. 
The other day I was on the back porch, and I'm on the back porch, and I'm praying in tongues. I was a big spiritual thing. I'm on the back porch. And one of my kids walk out, and they kind of go. Because <laughs> they were like, I ain't stopping. See, when they were young, you stop because they might have a bobo. But when you get older and they can take care of themselves, get out of the room. I'm talking to God. <laughs> Let your kids catch you reading your Bible. Let your kids catch you praying and crying out to God. Let them hear your cries. Don't hide that from them. When you're broken, you can't pay your bills. Let them hear you in the next room. Lord, I pray your provision, Lord, your word says. Let them hear you. Because you see, Manasseh, he heard his daddy pray. And he heard his daddy cry out to God. And he saw his daddy be led by God. And when his back was up against the wall and he was in chains, he cried out to God. Unlike his grandfather, he cried out to God. And the Bible says that God heard his cry. He heard it and he answered his cry. And Manasseh got freed, got reestablished in the kingdom. Watch this. And he started rebuilding everything he tore down that his daddy built. He reestablished the kingdom again, even after he blew it. Dear God, that's hope for somebody. That's my life. It's never over. Amen. Some of you are believing for prodigal sons and daughters. It's never over. It's never over. Manasseh restores everything back the way his father had it. And I want to challenge you today to be a generational father. I want to challenge you today that that the way you live and the things you do and the decisions you make today, that you'll make them with such a tenacity that they echo in the generations to come. That generations from now, they still talk about you. They still know your name. They still talk about the great things that God did in your life and through you. Amen? Be a generational father. The kind that leaves a legend. Leaves a legacy. Can we do that this morning? All you got to do is set your heart on God. Say, Pastor, how do I do that? How do I change things in my family? Listen to me, very simple. You just set your heart and your affection and your attention on God. Not anything else. It may be that you get on your knees and you cry out to him and you say, Lord, I've been a fool. I've been, I've been selfish. I've been, you fill in the blank. But Lord, would you forgive me and would you help me to reestablish your presence in my house? Lord, I've chased other gods. I've run and, and chased other things, Lord, but would you help me? Would you restore me, Lord? That's where it starts. It starts on your face before God. Saying, Lord, I blew it. I haven't led my family well. put too much weight on my spouse I tried to let other people lead Lord help me whatever it is that's where you start amen that's where you start and then you know what you do after that you just get up and you keep going and you let God speak to you you get up in his word let his word wash you and lead you let the Holy Spirit come in and fill you 
Amen? And you reestablish God's presence in your family. 